Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. If you followed the 2016 presidential campaign closely, then you surely know the name Corey Lewandowski and probably have a strong opinion of him one way or another. The tempestuous, loyal campaign manager of Donald Trump helped lead him to the Republican nomination and then was unceremoniously dumped. He did a little television commentary on CNN after that, but remained uh, a uh, confidant of uh, Mr. Trump uh, then and now. It it is a measure of the controversy surrounding this president and the people around him that Corey's uh, presence at the Institute of Politics last week uh, engendered uh, some protests, but also gave students there an opportunity to hear about his experiences in the Trump campaign and to question him closely about the new president and his policies. I had a chance to sit down with him as well, and here's that conversation. Corey Lewandowski, good to see you again. Welcome. We've spent a lot of time across desks together at uh, at CNN. Obviously, there's a lot to talk about going on right now, but before we do, I want to just get a sense of your, your own journey. Um, you were sort of shot... Uh, through a cannon in the last few years uh, and uh, weren't particularly well-known before that. Where did this all start for you? You know, a lot of people don't know much about me, and that's okay, and I'm okay with that. You know, I I have had a very remarkable life. Blue-collar guy, grew up in a blue-collar town of Lowell, Massachusetts. Lowell, Massachusetts, yeah. Um, you know, Shoes, is that what did they make there? Uh, textile. Textile, textile, yeah. yeah. Um, big, Paul Songus, right? Paul Songus. from yeah, Lowell, Massachusetts. Very close. Uh, live, he lives in the nice neighborhood. I live in the poor neighborhood, which is okay. <laughs> um, and Marty Mean, a number of other. Ed McMahon, and Lowell's a pretty famous place for some place, for some things. And Ed McMahon from? Ed McMahon from The Tonight Show. The Tonight Show? Yeah, no from kidding. Lowell, Massachusetts. Didn't know that. Um, and he grew up in a working class environment. And my grandfather was a union printer for 40 years. And I, when, when did your, you, your family probably came over from Europe at some point? Uh, from Canada. I came down from Canada. So I'm very fortunate, about a sixth-generation American from the Canadian uh-huh. side, mm-hmm. uh, French-Canadians. And my mother still speaks French, and my grandparents all spoke French, of course, in the house. Do you speak French? I don't. I took it for a long time in college and high school, but you know, I didn't make it. There are certain parts of your party where you could be expelled you know, for speaking French. So if you, I'd keep it on the down low if I you I won't do. tell anybody. Okay, I, won't right. tell, I have no, no language skills whatsoever. <laughs> so you know, then, like many other people, I, um, I was fortunate enough to go to uh, undergraduate school and want to study politics, went to graduate school, studied American government, and um, long story short, worked on Capitol well, Hill. Don't just, just, just back up. Uh, what was Lowell? What was Lowell like? What, what? How did Lowell kind of imprint Lowell. itself on you and shape your sense of the world? Yeah, Lowell, Lowell's a tough town. You know, it was a tough town. It was, um, you know, we went to public schools like everybody else did, and you know, it was a place where, growing up, I don't think people realized they weren't rich, right? But nobody was rich. It didn't matter. Um, it was a, it was, a, it was a town, still is a town where people value hard work. And, you know, my grandparents lived about 15 houses up the street from us. And so every weekend, all of us, my cousins, everybody would go to their house. And, you know, we never spent any money because nobody had any money. What did your folks do? Uh, my mom, you know, a single mom. My dad left when I was a kid and died when I was in high school. And so, you know, everybody kind of— How many brothers? I, I got a brother who's an active-duty Marine, so he's a colonel in the Marine Corps. And from six, seven years old, we were delivering newspapers every day to, to make some money. And in the winters, we'd shovel out cars and driveways like everybody else did. And it was, it's just what everybody did and pitched in to help the neighbors. And um, had no money to go to college. I was very fortunate to get a small scholarship to go to the University of Massachusetts at Lowell. 
and um, made it through college after a tough first semester like so many others. That, uh, maybe I joined I, the club, brother. I didn't really uh, study as much as I should have. Mm-hmm. But um, you know what happened after the first semester of college was uh, I went out and I worked on a dairy farm in upstate New York. Hard-working people. I How'd mean, you end up doing that? I was dating a girl whose family had a place up there, and I said, you know what? I don't need college. I'm too good for this. And I, and I walked away, and I went up to this dairy farm, and twice a day, every day, seven days a week, he milked a cow. And it was tough work, and these guys were workers. I mean, they, it didn't matter. Rain, sleet, snow, sick, healthy, Christmas. And I did that for about uh, two months, and I said, I better get back to college and learn something. And I did, and I went back and tried to – I had a really good professor who, who uh, took some interest in me, and – Got me back engaged, and I ended up graduating fairly well. And uh, went down, went to graduate school down in DC. And at American, uh, I went to American University. Uh, got a master's degree down there. And you did an internship, I read, in the uh, Massachusetts State House. Yeah, uh, which is, if you want to learn about politics, that's an interesting place to go. Uh, and you, you, uh, your the rep you interned for was a, a Democrat, right, from your area. So he was a Democrat state rep from Lowell. There were no Republicans. There are no right. Republicans from Lowell, right? Um, but you know the thing about him, and he, he, um, he had. There same, are very few Democrats. There are very few Republicans in Massachusetts. In Massachusetts, but, yeah. but his name was Steve Pangiatakis, and he went on to become. I, uh, I I knew that I read his name, but I was hoping you would say it. Yeah. So, so Steve, you. you know, he became a state senator and served as the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, but. You know what he believed in fiscal responsibility, and and that's you know that's what the the Democratic Party was for a long time in Massachusetts, uh, socially more liberal but fiscally very responsible. And I interned for Steve, and it was a great great relationship I had, and um, he really got me excited about being involved in politics. And went out and campaigned for uh, at the time there was a state rep by the name of John Cox, a Democrat from Massachusetts, who I went out and campaigned for. I was seven, ten, twelve years old campaigning. Hmm. Um, with my friends going door to door, and uh, I was invigorated by it. And you know, you know this uh, when you find something you actually love doing, it's not really work. And so I always say I have no tangible skills, so I get into politics. Mm-hmm. And I tried to do a whole bunch of other things, and um, this is where I came back to, and this is where I keep coming back to. So you went down to Washington. Uh, when did you sort of make the move to the Republican Party? You know, I went to – I interned for uh, what was the last Republican from Massachusetts. His name was Peter Torkelson in Congress in 1996. And I interned for him, and uh, Peter lost his reelection campaign in 96 by about 361 votes. And what I remember the most is the, camp- the, the congressional staff took a leave of absence starting on Halloween night before the election. So about four or five days before the election, drove up to Massachusetts to help campaign. And we get up there, and the campaign manager, who I'd never met, said, look, race is over. We're going to win. Feel free to go home. Go enjoy yourself. Go spend time with your family, your friends. Go out with your buddies. I say, hey, what do I know, right? Sure, I'll go do that. And we probably hit the bars or did whatever we did. And we woke up uh, four or five days later and he lost by 360 What happened votes. to that guy? Well, he disappeared basically, right? I mean, that's what <laughs> happened, right? I mean, Peter Torkelson lost his reelection campaign. I'm talking about the campaign manager. Well, yeah. I mean, she was ultimately fired and probably never had another job in politics again. But it, it, it instilled in me something that good politicians always know. You run like you're 10 points behind. No matter what, uh, and you work right up until election day and all the way through election day. Now remind me, but Torkelson was not uh, uh, like a, 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 a kind of deep red conservative Republican. He was more of a moderate Republican. Very moderate. Took the seat from Nick Marvulis, who happened to get indicted uh, going into that election the first time. Peter won in '92, um, which look, is always helpful. It, it always when helps when your yes, you yeah. and your opponent gets yeah. indicted. Mm-hmm. But look, even Massachusetts Republicans, you go back and look at the days of Bill Weld and Paul Salucci. Uh, and Jane Swift, the Republican governors at the time. Well, and Mitt Romney. And, and Mitt. The, these aren't the ultra-conservative right wing of the party, and that's where I grew up. I grew up with fiscal responsibility, and a lot of that uh, was, was held at the state house by Democrats and Republicans. That's why I think for a period of time, Bill Weld had a pretty good run as the governor of Massachusetts because he could work across party lines to agree on fiscal responsible things. And, and to me, that, that's the most important thing. I, you know, the, the other stuff is important, but it's not as important. And uh, so you went down to D.C. You got a degree. You got a master's degree. I did. And did you have to write a thesis and so on? I what did. Uh, so they have this thing at the, at the end of, you know, when you're finishing your master's degree, they, they actually time you. And you had to sit there and answer a series of questions. You had to memorize all these authors. And it was just, look, it was a disaster. Somehow they passed me. I think they just wanted me to get, get me out of the school, um, the School of Public Affairs down in Washington at, at American University. And look, I was so lucky. I was the first person in my entire extended family ever to go to graduate school. And so it was a big deal. It was a really big deal. Um, 
But, you know, I passed, probably by the grace of God, and uh, worked on Capitol Hill for a little while, and then um, decided to go out and, and really want you to worked, campaign. You worked for uh, Bob Nay from Ohio. Yeah. I went out to work on uh, uh, Congressman Nay's campaign in 98 and ran his reelect in 98 and 2000, uh, Bob Nay from Ohio, where I had a different look at politics there. Politics in Ohio are very different than they are in Massachusetts. Bob won, and he went on to become the chairman, the mayor. They call him the mayor of Capitol Hill, the chairman of the House Administration Committee, and I left. That wasn't for me. He, he ran into some problems himself in the Abramoff scandal. Yeah, Bob ended up going to jail. and you know, Were I you think, surprised by that? You know, Bob's a very good man. He was very good to me and took very good care of me, and I mean that in the best sense. When I was a young guy moving to Ohio and didn't have any family out there. But what happens, I think, and uh, this is not just on Bob, is people come to Washington – and they get staffs and they get cars and they get offices and everyone tells them how great they are and they forget the rules sometimes. And, uh, you know, Bob grew up in a, in a tough area of Ohio. Southeastern Ohio is a coal country and the steel industry that had been decimated. And I think sometimes people forget like, hey, you know what? People back home, when you're making $150,000 a year as a congressman and the guy back home is making $30,000 a year and you're taking the free meals and the free trips, you know, those are things that um, I think get members of Congress in trouble and he's not the only one. You got into a little bit of trouble then too uh, when you – you I guess inadvertently walked into the Capitol with a, a gun in your laundry bag or whatever it was. Yeah. What the hell was that? So you know what happened was um, I had a license to carry a concealed weapon in the state of Ohio and my I had it in a bag, a laundry bag that I would travel back and forth with. And, and the night before, uh, usually what would happen is I would drive the member's car, it, you know, it had – member of Congress plates because I would drive him to and from Ohio every week and never really thought about it for whatever reason and didn't really bring the car into the Capitol very often other than maybe on the outside to pick him up very quickly. And, uh, and what happened that particular day was I had my bag at my home in Virginia and went into the Capitol the same way I would normally do, uh, but I brought the bag with me. And I walked through the Longworth building and I put my bag on the magnetom and through the x-ray machine like everybody else and I walked through and the officer said to me, uh, can you step through, sir? And I said, of course. And so I stepped through, and he says, is this your bag? Said, of course it is. Said, What's in it? And it was literally, if you ever saw the pictures, it was just overloaded with dirty laundry I was going to bring back to Ohio and go. And he says, I think you've got something in the bag. I said, by all means. I, I had no understanding, intention, or whatever. And, and um, yeah, it, was a, it was a pretty humbling Awkward, experience. Awkward, huh? uh, Humbling. Humbling <laughs> because you go from freedom to not freedom in, in a matter of seconds. So you got locked up? Oh, yeah. No, right there. They said um, – you know, they they said, look, you know, we've got to process you. And uh, that's what they do. And so the Capitol Police are there to do. So the obvious question is, why, why did you have a gun? Was this uh, an accoutrement of campaigning in Ohio? Or? No, it wasn't that. It was, you know, uh, I'm a big supporter of the Second Amendment. And when I was in Ohio, um, you know, something that we'd go out and shoot a lot. And this wasn't this wasn't anything more than that. And it wasn't nefarious in any way. But I'll tell you, it was, um, it's very humbling when you go from yeah. having freedom to not having freedom in a matter of seconds. And uh, I went down and I was processing a D.C. facility. And uh, look, I'm, as much as I grew up in a tough town, it's a whole different ballgame when you walk in to a situation like that and uh, you really have no freedom. And I you know, waited hours to have the judge call me and then release me on my own recognizance. And then I you know, had to hire an attorney and do all the things that people do. Um, and ultimately, I was found that there was, there was no intent, obviously. And even the police officers, because they're professionals, said, look, clearly, I did not know it was in the bag uh, by, by my expression, by my demeanor. And they came and testified to that. And the congressman said, look, obviously, there was no intention here of any harm, which, of course, there wasn't. Um, but it was a it was If a you humbling. were like me, your laundry itself could have been designated a... Well, a deadly weapon. Believe me, if yeah. uh, the number of days I had in that bag, it might have been. <laughs> uh, but uh, did, did what did, did it change you in any way that experience? Oh, sure. Look, uh, you know, you get into a situation like that. Um, it, it reminds you just how important freedom is, right? How you go from doing what you think you can do from one day to the next, and um, all of a sudden, your life is not your own. And how about what you? Do with your weapons. Well, You're not, not packing yeah, no, now, no, are you? No, not just okay, no. Right. It's tough in Chicago, huh? Is, um, I want to calibrate that before but, I ask you any no, further questions. No, no, you're fine. But you know, okay. you know what it is. Is sure you have to you have to be um, cognizant all the time. But but more importantly, um, I I think the real issue is in an instant someone's life can change, and sometimes you don't plan on it. And that was a big change for me. 
going and having to go through that. And look, I was very fortunate. I had a boss that understood that it was clearly a mistake and he didn't fire me, which I thought was very kind of him. I offered to resign, of course. Um, but he said, no, I'm going to stand by. And resources to uh, get representation. My guess is you, there were people in that D.C. lockup who didn't have that. Uh, and, uh, I mean, this issue of the criminal justice system is one that is uh, hotly debated now because you've got a lot of people s- sitting there who don't have the resources to defend themselves, some of them. For, for crimes that, honestly, you know, I understand, like, a crime is a crime, but there are different levels. You know, committing a felony is very different than a Probably for things not, not in any way uh, to be provocative, but probably things less meaningful than walking into the U.S. Capitol with a gun. Oh, that, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, what I didn't know at the time, but I've learned since, is a number of people do this on a fairly regular basis. This is something because they come from other areas. They think that they need a weapon in D.C. for whatever reason. And, you know, it's a fairly common occurrence that people walk into the Capitol. It's a scary buildings. thing, though. You know, I, um, given the times in which we live, you know, I, I honor those guys who have to screen everybody who walks in there because, you know, there's there's a potential for some really horrible things to happen. Um, so then you left Washington and uh, you became an organizer. Yeah, I went up and uh, first I took a job at the Republican National Committee to be the Northeast you know, Legislative Political Director and help some races there. Um uh, Worked in the New Jersey governor's race, which is an off-year election up there way back a million years ago with Jim McGreevy and, and those guys. Um, those are the races we were doing at the time. But then I went to a, a 501c4. Against McGreevy. Against McGreevy, yeah. Yeah, Shundler, Brett Shundler was mm-hmm. the candidate in the Republican the side. The mayor of, of Jersey City, That's right. right. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I spent a number of months working in Trenton. Just flashing my jersey. Which is very, very exciting spending time in Trenton. Yeah. Um, at the time, there were no hotels in Trenton, so I got to drive back and forth to Princeton, which is fine. Um, but then I, I left there and joined an organization called Americans of Prosperity, Americans of Prosperity Foundation. To, Which is the Koch brothers-sponsored That's right. Sponsored group, probably in, uh, pretty much in its, its early years then. It, it was amazing. Um, you know, I had, the, I had the privilege of taking my wife and I think maybe my daughter at the time on a, one of a, a vacation. And we were uh, down in Aruba and I had this phone call from this person I'd never heard of. He says, hey, this is Tim Phillips and I'm with Americans of Prosperity and we'd like to hire you to run New Hampshire. I said, I have no idea who you are or what the organization is, but I'm on vacation with my family. And if you want to talk to me, I'll be back in two weeks. And lo and behold, he actually called. And, um, uh, you know, I, I kind of came on board to give some advice and counsel because I had uh, done a U.S. Senate race in New Hampshire. And uh, they said, look, you know, New Hampshire seems to be the type of place where smaller government in general uh, would be a good message there. And so uh, I spent some time building a chapter, launching the chapter, building it, trying to pass bills at the state legislative level that would reduce the burden of taxes on people, give people more economic freedom, and uh, built that to some level of success. I'm not sure how much, but then after three or four years of doing that, they promoted me, and I oversaw a fairly large region of the country on their behalf, and then ultimately went on to run their voter registration and get out the vote activities uh, on a nationwide basis. And it was based on the book, The Victory Lab. Uh, Sasha Eisenberg's book. Tim Phillips, uh, he's been a guest here at the IOP and on this uh, show. And whether you, whatever, you know, I obviously have a different orientation on a lot of issues, but their model is a pretty impressive model. And they started off not doing races so much as doing issues. Uh, I don't think that's well understood. I mean, they built a foundation based on. lists that they accumulated of people who were motivated not by candidates but by issue. The, the model is very different. And I can tell you when I launched the chapter on the State House steps in Concord, New Hampshire, literally seven people showed up. My wife was one of them. Our uh, infant daughter was the other. And then five <laughs> friends. And that's all it was. And it was to the fanfare of exactly nobody. Nobody cared. Nobody wanted it. Uh, it was just going to be another group they thought. The difference with the model is if you don't raise money from within your state and you can't get buy-in from the people who are actually impacted by the legislation that you're trying to change, the model fails. Uh, and, and that's a good thing. So it was important to get the people from the state of New Hampshire to say, look, this is something we want and you're creating value. So we didn't engage in races. We didn't engage uh, w- with candidates who are either running for the U.S. Senate or congressional or, or down-ballot races. We didn't do any of that. We just focused on state house legislative activities. We looked at issues like right to work. Can New Hampshire become a right-to-work state? It's still a fight that's going on to this day. For us, it was something where uh, we saw some early success, 
but didn't get a lot of buy-in. Then when, when we started to really grow was when the Republicans took over the state house, and we knew that we could help move an agenda which was going to be pro-economic freedom. And that's where AFP really grew. John then, Lynch was the Democratic governor. John Lynch was the Democratic governor. You famously debated a cardboard cutout of him on the state uh, I did. State House. At tea, at tea Party Day, yeah. 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 Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you uh, at this moment, because you are an expert on New Hampshire politics, do you, do you, do you think your, your old colleague Steve Miller was on TV um, suggesting that there was uh, a uh, cavalcade of buses coming across the border from Massachusetts to New Hampshire um, with voters who – from Massachusetts who are voting illegally in New Hampshire. You're an expert on New Hampshire politics. Almost every Republican in New Hampshire said that's, that, Look, that's, that didn't happen. That, that's not what happens. But the law in New Hampshire is very unique and needs to be changed because the law stipulates in the state of New Hampshire, if it is your frame of mind on election day that you are a New Hampshire resident, then you're entitled to vote there. That means you could be there for one day, one week, one month, one year. And, and I think the problem with that, the way that the attorney general of the state of New Hampshire has uh, read this law – is that it's so broad that it has the potential for voter fraud because people could come in that day if they so chose and say, hey, look, you know what? I've got a business here or I feel like I'm a New Hampshire resident because I've always been here. Guess what? I'm going to vote in the elections. And but I, I'm not asking about what the potential is. No, no. I understand the point you're making, but the but notion the, that – The law has to be changed. But, but do you think that the election turned to New Hampshire on – people coming across the border and posing as New Hampshire residents. I, I live on the border. I didn't see buses coming across the line to say that, hey, we've moved up from Massachusetts. And candidly, most of the people that actually move in from Massachusetts move into the southern tier of the state of New Hampshire. And that happens to be the most conservative area of the state in the Rockingham and Hillsborough County are right along that border. Um, so I don't, I don't think you have that. But what I do think you have is you have the potential in the future for voter fraud. And, and the important part here, David, is you have to remember – with 400 state representatives in the state of New Hampshire, literally one or two votes in these districts where they only represent 3,300 people yeah. could make a difference. So I think the state needs to address that. They've tried to do some of that with voter ID and saying, look, if you want to cast a provisional val- ballot, if you don't live in the state and don't have a recognized driver's license from the state, you can cast a provisional ballot. But when you go back and verify by mailing you a piece of mail at that address before we count your vote, I think that's a fair thing for the state to do. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Corey Lewandowski. So tell me how you came to know Donald Trump. I mean, you must have – you obviously knew Donald Trump like everybody else. You probably saw him on TV. You knew him as a personality. When did you actually meet him? I was still working for Americans for Prosperity, and it was April of 2014. And what happened was – Dave Bossy, who was the president of Citizen United, and I decided that we were going to jointly have an event and invite potential presidential candidates up to New Hampshire. Between the two organizations. The two organizations. So Citizen United and Americans for Prosperity were going to jointly host an event and invite as many potential presidential candidates to New Hampshire to address the crowd, right? Good earned media opportunity for anybody. And Marco Rubio came. Ted Cruz came. uh, Mike Lee came. Kelly Ayotte was there. A number of – Mike Huckabee, Rand Paul. And, and Dave said to me, let's invite Donald Trump. And I said, Dave, he's not going to run. Like, I don't want – yeah, it's just let's not do this. And he said, no, let's invite him. I said, OK. So Mr. Trump flew up on his helicopter from New York. Because and, you guys knew that if he came, it's a, it's a draw. it would be a show. And, and, but, you know, look, when you've got eight or nine potential presidential candidates in a room, you're going to have a draw anyway. C-SPAN's going to cover it live. It's a first of the nation. We're spoiled in New Hampshire, so we're used to this. And yeah. we had the biggest room we could get. And um, – Look, I run a very tight ship. We knew we were going to start exactly on time and end on time. It was going to start at 8 a.m. It was going to end at 4 p.m. It wasn't going to go any longer, and I had it mapped out minute by minute. And I think each candidate was given like nine minutes to speak, and we had a big clock. And uh, Mr. Trump came up, and he, we had a number of people. The Marshall Blackburn was there, a bunch of others. And we were going to have a lunch break scheduled so people get up and walk around. And we scheduled him right before the lunch break, and he was supposed to have nine minutes. Well, he spoke through the entire lunch period <laughs> for 45 minutes with the, you know, the flashing stop talking sign. And um, and he just you know just went on. And he gave a speech and worked out. For, it was my first interaction with him though. And the, the thing that was most striking to me was I had my young daughter with me, who's she's ten now, so she's about seven at the time. And she's in the back room in the green room. And you got four kids, right? I do. And um, she was the oldest, so she wanted to come. And she said, uh, "Hey, daddy." I said, "Yeah." She said, "The man over there 
offered me a ride in his helicopter. What do you think? <laughs> and I said, well, what do you want to do? And she just shook her head and she said, no. And I said, you know, that's okay. You don't have to go. But I thought it was so kind to go out of his way. He didn't have to do that. And he, I bet you none of the other candidates offered Nobody else offered a ride, ride in their helicopter. helicopter. Nobody. I mean, yeah. Rubio, Cruz, <laughs> nobody. I mean, uh, and, and so I, I just I was very kind of him. And following that interaction with him, I sent him a nice thank you note, of course, as, as just a matter of courtesy. Mm-hmm. And then uh, fast forward to uh, November of 2014 after the elections. Dave Bossy called me up again. And Dave and I have a good relationship, a strong relationship. And he said, hey, I've got to go to New York in January to go see Mr. Trump. Would you come with me? I said, sure. What, do you wanna, what are we going for? He said, I've got to go see him. Come with me. We'll meet in New York. I said, of course. Who wouldn't want to go see Donald Trump in New York? And uh, ended up. The day before I was supposed to go to New York, Dave called me and said, hey, Corey, something came up. I can't be there tomorrow. But can you go anyways? I said, sure. What am I going for? He goes, i just go see Mr. Trump. It'll be fine. So I drove to New York and uh, waited. Long story short, I ended up in his office and uh, he stood up. He shook my hand. We started talking. He started telling me about um, you know his Air Force, meaning his helicopters and airplanes and all the things that he had. And then he told me. He said, and you in turn did the same. I said, you know, I borrowed a, I rented a car to get here, which is a pretty nice one, uh, zip car, I think it's called, and uh, it was nineteen ninety nine a day, so uh, you know, it, it was fine. And um, and we started talking, and we were about thirty minutes into the conversation. And he said to me, "Do you want to run my campaign for president?" He said, "What do you think the odds of me running and winning are?" And I said, "You know, sir, with all due respect, five percent." And he said, "I think they're ten percent." And I said, "Well, let's compromise, seven and a half." And he said, "Done." And with that – That's it, why he's such a good negotiator. He, he started high, right? And, and look, I walked away thinking I had the, you know, the, the benefit, and he walked away thinking he had the benefit. And he shook my hand, and he said, okay, you're hired. Did you go into that meeting with any expectation that he was going to no. tell you that he was going to run for president? No. And this was November of 2014. This, this he was January of 15. January of 15. So mm-hmm. he didn't announce We started we announced in June. June. So he hired me on the spot. I, uh, I stood up. I remember very clearly, walked out of his office. I called my wife and I said, I think I just took a new job. She said, doing what? I said, I'm not sure. And, uh, and I drove back to New Hampshire. Comforting. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, look, I had been working She's for used to this, the I Cokes. Assume. And they're not running out of money anytime soon, okay? They were doing just fine when Americans Prosperity was doing well and is doing well. And I said, you know what? Let's try something different. Just take a chance. And, um, and look, it became a bone of contention later after I was, uh, you know, asked to leave the campaign. But I, I signed a contract. And said, so, look, if I'm going to work for you, I want to have a contract because if you fire me tomorrow – became have- a bone of contention because it had a, a non-disclosure clause it, in it. B- because it said that if you want to terminate my relationship, you have to pay me for the length of my contract, mm-hmm. right, which is how normal people do business. But it did have a non-disclosure. It did. It did. And so um, you know, I, I signed up and he said, OK, you start with me tomorrow. And I said, well, you know, I've got a job and ended up – the first event we did was in South Carolina, and I wasn't sure if people were coming out to see him because he was a celebrity or because we were going to run for president. And we methodically, over the next four or five months, built what we thought were the bones of a presidential campaign. No one really believed he was going to run. Nobody. I mean, it was Very kind small of, when he came down that escalator in June of 2015, everybody, there was there was a lot of shock and surprise and a little bit of, uh, of uh, mocking, I think, on the part of the... I think I may have been involved in some of the mocking. Um, when did you know what he was going to say when he came down that uh, escalator? So on, we originally wanted to announce on June fourteenth, which happens to be Flag Day. It also happens to be the president's birthday, uh, but it fell on a Sunday, and I knew I didn't want to do it on a Sunday. I knew I would do it on a Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, and so we spent about six weeks planning this announcement uh, meticulously. You know, from the color of the credentials that we would issue to each person to. And was he involved in that, in, in uh, the determining so those factors? so much that part. I mean, look, I was involved in that. But, but myself and uh, George Ujikos, who's the director of advance for the White House, we, we huddled ourselves in the Sheridan in Midtown, New York, and I wrote what was supposed to be his announcement speech, like any good staffer would. And I went through you know, a dozen iterations of it and had every word down. And I said, you know, Mr. Trump, this is going to be about seven minutes and 45 seconds is about how long you know, this is supposed <laughs> to go for. And we delivered it to Mr. Trump uh, on that Sunday he read it, and I said, "You have any questions?" No, all set, great. So Tuesday, I had that. Look, I had the very high privilege of just before he announced he was going to run for president of the United States. Uh, everybody was gathered downstairs, and as the campaign manager, I went up to his office in the lobby. At in the lobby, Tower. and and I had the privilege of going up to the twenty sixth floor of Trump Tower in his office, and everybody else was already downstairs. His entire family, and um, it was just me, him, and his wife, Melania Trump, there. 
And he said, are you ready for this? And I said, yes, sir, I am. And he just took this deep breath and exhaled. He said, let's go. And that was it. And we But went. you're a seven-minute and 45 right seconds speech was we, we, uh, just something that he could turn over and jot some notes on. Well, we, um, you know, we distributed it to the media like most good campaigns would and said, here are the prepared remarks. And, and one outlet ran it, of course, before they did any due diligence. But, and then he threw it out the window and he went off on his own. That, so that was your introduction to life with Trump as a candidate. That's right. Um, obviously, what he said that day was provocative and offensive to some people – Exhilarating, I'm sure, to others. As we sit here, we're at uh, the University of Chicago. You're appearing at the Institute of Politics. That's created some uh, f- uh, furor. Um, and part of it is it still goes back to the words that he spoke that, uh, that day. When you heard him deliver those famous lines about rapists and I, I forget the other. You, you remember the phrase uh, in, in characterizing immigrants from Mexico. Uh, what did you think? Here's the here's the unique thing about that particular day. There were probably 300 credential media there that day in the lobby listening to it. Not one media outlet following that speech was up in arms. And what we did immediately following that speech is we got on the airplane. We flew to Iowa where Donald Trump gave almost the exact same speech that night at Hoyt Chairman in uh, Des Moines. And then the next day, we went up to New Hampshire, gave the, almost the exact same speech. So that would have been Tuesday night and Wednesday. No media outroar at all. What happened, unfortunately, then there was a terrible tragedy in South Carolina. A crazy person walked into an African-American church and yes, killed a bunch of people. Of course. And we were supposed to be in South Carolina on that Thursday because we were going to go Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina in order of the primary process. And we had to cancel. We had to cancel that out of respect. And what I remember then was that Thursday after that was Hillary Clinton went on television and said it was the type of language that Donald Trump was using that caused this type of incident to happen. Didn't blame him directly, but use that. And then the media went back and looked at what Donald Trump said in that announcement speech. And then on that Friday is when the uproar happened. So he announced on Tuesday, made the same remarks basically in New York, in Iowa, in New Hampshire, but it wasn't until that terrible tragedy in South Carolina where this became more into focus. You know, your recollection and my recollection are slightly different, partly because I was on TV the day of his announcement, and there was a lot of focus on that particular line and um, just the sort of the very edgy and, and you know, kind of divisive na- nature uh, of that line. Um what do you say to people who who were really offended by that? Because as you know, I mean, you, you appreciate hard work. There are millions and millions of millions of uh, immigrants in this country, um, some undocumented, uh, who, uh, who are among the hardest workers uh, in this country uh, and came here because they wanted to be part of this country and support their families – who are guilty of nothing but wanting to do that and felt like they were being caricatured in that speech. I think what Donald Trump tried to relay in that speech was that we need to do a better job with our borders. And people come to this country because they want what's best for their family, because we are an amazing place and the land of opportunity and a, a nation of immigrants, that all of us came here in some way. And worked hard. And if you remember, look, when my family came and others, there were areas of the city that were designated for those particular types of uh, backgrounds. So Little Canada, we used to call it. I don't think you can say that anymore. You know, the, the Polish area, which, you know, people would go and have their communities and they would learn English and they'd work hard and, and, and Well, this and city is Americans. an example of city with a lot Chicago. of ethnic enclaves. Right. Polish. Very, very, my family is, is from Poland. And so um, used to have a lot of that. And I think what Donald Trump talked about was, look, if we can't control our borders, what we can't have is people coming over and and doing things to Americans. And what happened following that speech was Kate Steinle was, Steinle was killed in uh, California on the pier by a person who had been deported five or six or seven times, locked up and deported. And he'd heard stories of this many, many times. And what I think he tried to say and what he – tried to impress upon people was 
we're going to put Americans first. And that, I know it sounds like isolationism. I know it sounds well, like yeah. it sounds like we're going to close the borders. If we have a system where our people can't work, they can't get good jobs. This is not derogatory towards illegal immigrants. We have to take care of the U.S. citizens first. I know it sounds terrible, but I'm an American first. And I think you have to make sure that those people in our country who are Americans that are here legally who want to work have that opportunity to do so. And the best way to potentially do that is to control the borders. The um, but his presentation was a little bit was a little less uh, um, reasoned than the one you just uh, gave. But when you say um, so, uh, they're rapists, they're murderers, and uh, and uh, I assume some are good people, the implication is that the a large number of these people are not good people and are rapists and are murderers, that probably – there was probably a constituency out there for that. Is, is that – I mean would you say that that's true, that there were people who responded to that, that it was a provocative thing that helped him politically with some voters? Sure. There's no question that there is a, uh, a portion of the electorate that wants to hear that. There's no question about it. There is a portion of the electorate who uh, believes that we should close our borders indefinitely. To everybody, there's no question. Look, there are there are some elected officials who've talked about this, uh, both Republicans and Democrats on both sides of the aisle. Said we need to close the borders and get a better handle. But there's no question there is, uh, particularly in the Republican primary space, there are people who look at that and say, "Okay, I understand this, and you know what? Maybe he's right." There, uh, so it, it may have been good politics, but was do you think it was a fair characterization? I don't think that's for me to judge. I think, you know, the president is the one who wants to lay out, you know, candidate Trump and now President Trump is the one who's going to lay out his agenda and he'll be judged based on the merits of that agenda and the success or failure of that agenda. So that's not for me to say. I think it's for each individual How do you think he'll be judged? You're very close to his constituency. Uh, he, he once famously said I could go out and kill someone on Fifth Avenue and they'd stick with me. But and hopefully we don't t- test that proposition. But Secret Service won't allow that. Anymore. <laughs> Uh, but the uh, but there must be some things that he has to accomplish in order to keep those base voters with him. What what are those things? Look, I think some of the things that he has to accomplish is he has to put people back to work. His plan, and he's talked about this publicly, is to put 25 million people back to work in four years. Very, very, very difficult to accomplish. I mean, that would yeah, be I think double. Bill Clinton had the best record probably in the modern era, and that was 22 million over eight. That's right. Years. It'd be double what any president's ever done in four years. Um, so that's part of what he has said he will accomplish. Part of what he said he's going to accomplish, if you look in the upper Midwest states, if you look in the Indianas, the Michigans, the uh, Wisconsins of the world, right? Uh, bringing jobs back there. And part of the jobs that have been lost there have gone through uh, modernization. So not just because of bad trade deals, but basically, look, you can get a robot now to do something that – Yeah, this is a question I wanted to ask you because the trade issue I think was as uh, at least as powerful for him with uh, the voters who ultimately elected him than the, uh, than the immigration issue was. In fact, in the exit polls, there was less support for his immigration position than for his trade position. Uh, but um, the reality of the economy today – and you come from a – from a manufacturing community is that uh, the biggest threat, it seems, to middle-class jobs is less China and Mexico and more robots and computers. It is. But, you know, the difference is, um, you know what you need to do now? The people who used to be building the, manu- the, the cars with their hands, we, need now, we now need them to be coding the cars. I was told that the average car, the average uh, General Motors car, has a hundred thousand lines of code written into it. That's more code in it than the F thirty five fighter jet. And the reason is because people now use their cars as their offices, as you know, everything. They want to have, you know, the they want to be able to see where they're going. They've got the map inside. They've got hands free. They can voice command all those things. You need to retool the system for the people who used to be building the cars with their hands. Now will be writing code for those cars. And there's a huge opportunity to grow in that particular field as opposed to just a car building field. I think what you have is you have people in the upper Midwest who've looked at the bad trade deals that Donald Trump has talked about for a long time. And if you go back and look, in 1989, the president sat down with Oprah Winfrey. At that time, candidate Trump and now Mr. Trump and now the president sat down with Oprah Winfrey and said, look, our country's getting killed in these bad trade deals. China's killing us. Vietnam is killing us. We need to do something to be more competitive. You know what we found in the campaign? 
it is so difficult to use American-made products here that are truly made in America. The baseball caps are a great example. You know, what you could buy in China is at two cents or three cents or ten cents. Costs you here twenty five cents or thirty cents. Well, yeah. he learned that because his ties and his apparel that he brands significantly came easier from. to do it overseas. That's, that's exactly right. But even look the the Make America Great Again hats, which we sold tens of thousands of, maybe hundreds of thousands of. You know, we use a firm in uh, California to do it. We did a nationwide search. There was about two companies in, in the U.S. that can actually make these hats and made in the U.S. And our cost point was significantly higher. I think. But maybe those aren't the jobs. Of the future, maybe as you say, the jobs of the future are coding uh, these computers. You, it's interesting you picked the car example because um, we're going to be in a situation by the end of this decade where there are driverless cars on the market, and uh, you're a, a highfalutin public affairs, not lobbyist, but public affairs Strategy. consultant. Now I don't know if the, any of the auto manufacturers are among your clients, but. Uh, but there are millions and millions of people in this country who make a living driving. And where are they going in the economy? It seems like these are weightier issues in certain ways. There is no doubt that in the 80s and 90s that some of these labor agreements uh, disadvantaged some communities and advantaged other communities. In the upper Midwest where we're sitting today, uh, a lot of uh, manufacturing towns were uh, were adversely affected. But it seems like almost yesterday's battle now in the, the battle of the futures, what do we do with all these folks who are being idled by computers and robots? Here's what you have to remember. We don't even know what's coming. Nobody heard the word Uber 10 years ago, right? Uber has fundamentally transformed the way that people travel in this country now. If I would have said to you 10 years ago, David, I'm going to put an app on your phone, and every time you press it, a car is going to show up. It's going to take you where you want to go. Yeah, I have that. It's called a taxi. Right? Said, no, no, we're going to fundamentally transform the way we do this. And people now use Uber or Lyft or – and like I, I don't work for any of these guys, so it doesn't matter. But they fundamentally change the way it's going. And if – you know, innovation is what's going to bring our country forward. That's what it has always been. And so where we're going tomorrow and the next day and the next day, it has to be a place where the government is giving you incentives. And I don't mean financial incentives, but they can't be regulatory burdens on companies from growing. And what we've heard – time and time and time again on the campaign trail is if you talk to people who have been very successful over a period of three or four or five decades, they will tell you if they had to go start that company today, they couldn't because of the regulatory burden that the government has placed on them. You have to lift those burdens. And what the president has done, he signed an executive order that says for every new, every new regulation, we're going to remove two regulations. That's good, smart business sense. Let's see what it depends it, on the regulation. Well, no, that, let's see what it is. But uh, what we know every time is just more regulation, more regulation. You have to make sure that – this is a true story. I tried to start the small business, right? My Avenue Strategies, Will you let me know company. when your stories aren't true? Yes, okay. I will. Right. This is true. So I, I tried to start the small business called Avenue Strategies. And in order for me to take a check from a client, I have to go open up a bank account. In order to get a bank account, you have to get something called an employment identification number, EIN number issued by the government. Between December 23rd and January 3rd, the federal government was closed for issuing EIN numbers. First, it was a maintenance system on there, uh, so you couldn't do it electronically. Then I called. I waited 47 minutes. I talked to an operator, and she said uh, – I think her name was Mrs. Robinson. She said, did you fill out the form? I said, no, but I'd like to do it over the phone so I can get this number. She said, no, no, you need to fax it to me. I said, fax it? What year are you in? I don't have a fax machine. I can go to Kinko's maybe and fax it. I said, can I email it to you? She said, no, we don't have an email. I said, once I fax it, how long till I get my number? She said, seven to ten business days. I said, excuse me? She said, yeah, seven to ten business days, which means between December 23rd and January 3rd, not one new business was started in this country. But this doesn't sound – got to take a break uh, here. Uh, but this doesn't sound like a problem with regulation so much as a problem with the need to uh, innovate and upgrade you, government you, systems. You have to have the government that's working for the people again. That's what you need. You can't let the bureaucrats but you would, But uh, you wouldn't argue that uh, employers shouldn't have employer identification. Numbers. You need to have one, right? Okay. I couldn't start a business without one. I want to take a break on a point of agreement. Perfect. So we'll be right back with Corey Lewandowski. Um, let's go back to the campaign because you had a pretty successful run uh, with uh, Donald Trump. Uh, he was considered kind of a joke when he announced by a lot of people in politics. And he, the joke was on them because he ended up taking um, – uh, certainly a base of the Republican Party and riding it uh, to the nomination. In the spring of 2016, 
you you had a little tumultuous run there. You had a run in with a reporter, a female reporter, charged but not uh, actually indicted for that, uh, and uh, so there was some volatility around you. I'm not going to probe that. Interestingly, she was from Breitbart, but let's set that aside for a second. Um, what happened with you and uh, uh, and Donald Trump? We hear about the fact that he's deeply loyal, um, but you were cast aside having ridden from the very beginning of this thing to the nomination. I was very fortunate to spend 18 months having a front row seat of history, and uh, I know how fortunate I was for that. But you know in a campaign um, – when you put 18 hours a day into something seven days a week, other things suffer. Candidly, my family, my health, others. Um, you, you, nobody can maintain that. And we had such a small team. It was five of us. And, and I mean, You and I handled it sense. differently, by the way. You, uh, you're thin. I gained 30 pounds. But, well, uh, I lost about 30 pounds, I yes. think, and uh, you know, became a, a fraction of, of what it was. And it, it's not healthy. It, it, my, mentally, physically. To work that hard and, and look, I'm a hard worker and I'm willing to do it. But um, you know what? But happened? you didn't leave on your no, own of your I, I own didn't. volition. You know what happened? Like anything, uh, we were a startup. We were a small startup, and we were a tight knit group, and we never had a leak. Never. Eighteen, sixteen months. Then we started to bring new people in, who had a different agenda. And I think it's fair to say that the people who started with the Trump team, uh, their agenda was truly Donald Trump. I don't think I got into this to. Claim fame and fortune of, you know, getting, helping get the next president of the United States elected. I don't think that was what the goal was. I think it was to truly help him. And that was the mindset. And we were all very, very close. As the team expanded, uh, people had their own agendas and started to leak stories and, and want to move their own narratives. And, and that's okay. And we went from what was a small startup to a mid-sized company and didn't grow quickly enough, in my opinion. I didn't do enough hiring, and I got a lot of um, – well, One of the criticisms was that you traveled with him a lot and weren't really there to manage day-to-day. That's, that's right, it be, because when you're uh, with Donald Trump, the decision matrix are him to you, right? And if you're not there to provide input, uh, he wasn't going to wait till he landed the plane at 30,000 feet in two hours from now to make a decision. So – Look, we built the team in, in such a way where it was so small that there was no one back running the day-to-day operations because it had to be part of it. Don't forget, you had a first-time candidate, someone who'd never been involved before. Well, and not just a first-time candidate. Like how many times did he go out to the microphones and surprise you with the news that he made? Sure. I mean it happened a lot in, in a lot of different places. Uh, you know, the John McCain example is one of those. Mm-hmm. And When so, he said that he didn't – When uh, he said John McCain was a war hero. A hero. Yeah. Uh, you know – what did you as, think when you like, heard as, that? As a political operative, um, my instincts were the campaign is over, as probably most people believe that at the time, and I remember it well. And he walked off the stage, and I've, I've told the story, and I said, Mr. Trump, can I speak to you for a second, sir? And he said, sure. And we walked into a room. We closed the door, and he said, that was pretty good, huh? I said, no, sir. We just said <laughs> that uh, John McCain wasn't a war hero, and he spent six years in a, in a prison camp for his country. And he said, no, he hasn't um, taken care of our veterans enough. And I said, sir, I think we – need to rethink this and make an apology. And he said, I think you're wrong, and let's go downstairs and do a press conference. Then we had a 28-minute, extremely contentious press conference. We left Iowa. We canceled our next event, and I remember it well. I got on the airplane. I called my wife, and I said, look, I'm coming home. Race is over. That was on a Saturday. And the next day, Sunday, et cetera, you know, that was the news. Uh, well, and a lot of the one media of those, made the same – a lot of the oh, that's right. class made the same uh, that, uh, apparently wrong conclusion. Well, that, that's right. And, um, and look, as, as a – what I hoped would be some type of professional that I am. Uh, that, was, that was my advice is we need to apologize. Uh, he said, no, I'm going to double down. Can he apologize? I mean, sure. have you ever seen him do it? Look, he, I mean, he publicly. A- absolutely. Um, you know, what people don't understand about him is um, how magnanimous he is in private, how gracious he is, how uh, thoughtful he is. Uh, These are not adge- adjectives that are normally associated but, with him. But, you know, Dave, if you spend 18 hours a day with somebody, seven days a week, for 18 months, you get to know a person. Now, you can like the person, you can hate the person, but you're going to get to know them in that period of time, right? You're going you're gonna to know what this person's about. You're going to know what they're like. You're going to understand what their value proposition is and, and what they hold dear. Uh, and I saw it firsthand. You know, on more than a dozen occasions, he would say to me, Corey, how's your family? Do you need to go home and see your family? Do you need to bring your family down here so you can be with them? And I say, sir, I just want to work because I just want to work. And, and look, that's, that's on me. But he was always very concerned about making sure that my family was taken care of, knowing that. And he would say, 
would you like me to call your wife and tell her that you're doing a good job? Sir, I appreciate that, but no thank you. Uh, b- because he was always very concerned. So what happened at the end? I mean, uh, at uh, one know, point he said, okay, it's over. You, you know what happened? Um, uh, look, I think what happened was enough well, How people, did he tell you that? Uh, enough people had told him that I didn't have the core competency or capability to get him any further than I had gotten him, which was at that point the Republican nomination. And uh, they believed that they needed a more seasoned professional who was going to come in and, and run the campaign. And at that juncture, they believe that Paul Manafort, who candidly had never run a campaign in his life, has been a delegate counter, was that person. Well, he ran a campaign for Viktor Yanukovych in Ukraine. He's never run a U.S. campaign that I'm aware of. But, but, but the point is, you know, that was a decision that was made outside of my purview. That was, those, those were discussions that were taking place without me being part of that. And Unfortunately, what you can't do is you can't be in two places at once. I couldn't simultaneously be in Trump Tower, you know, explaining what the campaign strategy was to the kids and the other key members of the team if I'm also traveling with Donald Trump because we were on the road six days a week. But did it hurt when you were – I mean, I can't – I mean, okay, I've been I, in these situations. Surprised. Even weren't you – David, I was completely surprised. I walked in on a Monday morning on June 20th of uh, 2016. I was in the office at 6 a.m. like I normally was. I had uh, done conducted three phone calls, three conference calls, and by nine thirty in the morning, I was asked to go have a conversation with a couple people. And during that conversation, they said to me, "We appreciate what you've done, but you can't work here anymore." And who are the couple of people? Uh, you know, some of the family members um, and some of the the attorneys. And did you said, hear from uh, from Trump himself? Not, not not at that particular moment. Not at that particular moment. Um, and so they said, you know, thank you. And I said, look, what am I being fired for? We won. We won 38 times, 38 primaries and, and caucuses. We received more votes than any candidate in the history of the Republican Party. You are the Republican nominee for president of the United States. Look, if I was, with all due respect, running Jim Gilmore's campaign, I should have been fired. Or pick any of the other 16 candidates that we vanquished. But we won. And, you know, there wasn't really a good answer. And, and that's okay. And look, that's a little hurtful, as you can imagine, because you put so much of your life and energy and time into something. Um, but um, look, I, I want him to be successful. I've always wanted him to be successful. Would I have preferred to have been able to be a part of it till the end? Sure. Let's talk about Manafort for a second because he's in the news right now, and there is some intimation that he was in touch with the Russians during the course of the campaign. Do you have any reason to believe uh, to believe that? Did you see any evidence of that? I know he came after you. Well, Paul but- was there. Uh, Paul lasted eight weeks and one day from the time I uh, was asked to leave to the time he was asked to leave. And, but who's counting, right? Well, I'm not counting. It was yeah. that one extra day. Yeah. Um, you know what it was? Uh, I, I don't know. Paul took most of his meetings and phone calls in his apartment, so he didn't work out of the campaign office very much. He didn't travel with us ever. Uh, so I didn't have much of a relationship with him because he was back in the building you know, doing his work. Um, I have are, no idea. are you surprised by these stories? Look, I, I have no idea if you know the stories that have been very public about dossiers and Paul's name appearing in you know other foreign countries about receiving money. I don't know if they're true. If they're not true, I have no idea. I have no reason to believe them uh, whatsoever. But let me say this: if anybody crossed the line and gave information to a foreign agent or a foreign government or foreign intelligence official, uh, whether that's Paul Manafort or it's uh, Rick Gates or anybody else. Uh, I hope they're held accountable. And what if they were? Uh, what if they were cooperating in uh, in ways that were to benefit the president? Because that's the allegation of the intelligence community. That not the allegation. I mean, I think it's been accepted as their conclusion that the Russians were trying to help. But I, I don't think. Look, I spent a lot of time with Donald Trump. Never, ever, ever, ever in my entire tenure did he ever intimate. Uh, anything about wanting any help from the Russians. Never. Never brought up. Never discussed. If Paul Manafort did something that he was trying to encourage the Russians to be involved in this election cycle, and he did so on his own accord without any direction from uh, then-candidate Trump, the campaign, or President Trump. I am certain of that. On the issue of Russia, you say if, if Manafort was acting or any of the other others who've been named were, were in concert with the Russians on some of the things that they were doing. You say Manafort did it. He did it without the knowledge of uh, the president. But he, the reason it comes up is because the president has been sort of, who's not shy in voicing his opinions, has been strangely um, 
open to Vladimir Putin, unchallenging to him. Did you ever have any conversations with him during the campaign about why that was? No, and and let me be clear. Any staffer who contacted a potentially contacted uh, a Russian agent or a Russian official has done so on their own accord and not at the direction of the campaign, the president, or anybody else in the administration. But let me say this. If the United States can develop a relationship with Russia where they can agree to do one thing, just one thing only, which is to go to Syria and destroy ISIS, uh, that is what I believe the president's agenda is, which is to go to the area where ISIS is promulgating and and – Stop them in their tracks. If that means we can work with Russia to make that happen, then that's a good thing. Does that mean we're going to work with Russia on everything? Of course not. But if we can find one way for the betterment of our own country and our own citizens so that ISIS isn't coming here to kill us, and we can do that with the help of a major uh, force in the in the world, then that's a place where I think we can find Do you think he made a mistake when he said uh, what he said to Bill O'Reilly on Super Bowl Sunday when he said – that uh, when he seemed to be equating America and the tactics that America employs to those of Vladimir Putin, who, after all, does kill and jail political opponents, kill and jail journalists, and is uh, an authoritarian um, dictator in many ways. Oh, look, there's no question Vladimir Putin has done, the, you know, at least been elected to do those things. And, and, it's and pretty what, well proven. What, and what, you know, for his country, he's been, um, you know, his approval ratings in his country are very good. There's no question about it. Now, does that mean we're going to agree on everything? Of course not. Does that mean we should close the door and never have a relationship? Absolutely not. They are one of the world's largest powers. And if we can have a working relationship, it would be better than an adversarial one. He just had the courts throw his principal opponent off the ballot, so he can't be that confident about his problem. I think he's going to win. <laughs> What about Mike Flynn? You must know him very well. He was around the campaign. He's obviously now uh, been dispatched in record time as national security uh, director. Um, could, uh, there, there's a suggestion that he has had contacts with the Russians during that. Uh, I think there's two very important parts of the Mike Flynn component. Look, in order to um, ascertain domestic wiretap information, you need a court order to do that. And what I have heard so far that has been publicly reported is that he has placed six calls or some number of calls to the ambassador to Russia to talk potentially about something, whether it's legal or not, is not for me to say. What we know is that somebody has a copy of that transcript. Now, how you obtain that transcript by spying on someone domestically, I'm not sure because I don't well, think that's clearly they done. were they were they were listening in on the Russian ambassador. I understand, but you're a U.S. citizen on domestic soil. I don't know if you can legally do that without a court should order. Should have known that if he was like, uh, uh, of, coming out of the intelligence community? Uh, of course, you should know that. But the question is, was a government agency listening to domestic U.S. citizen telephone calls? On domestic soil. If so, that's a clear violation I, of the law. Can I ask you a question? Knowing Donald Trump as you do, is it possible that Flynn made these five or six calls without the knowledge of the president or the president-elect? I mean, given the nature of their relationship and the, – The relationship with General Flynn was one where he was a steadfast supporter of the president. Um, I can see no scenario where the president or president-elect at the time would have directed Mike Flynn to make a phone call to a Russian official to discuss sanctions. Number one, it's just way out of the realm of possibility. Number two, I think Mike would understand as the former head of the Defense Intelligence Agency that those calls are probably being monitored through U.S. Intercept. And again, I, I don't know what, if what Mike did was legal or illegal. The question is, no, I, I how does that it, information Corey, get there? I, 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 I get your point on that. Um, what about the fact that uh, he apparently didn't own up to this, to the that, vice president. That's the president. larger issue. Look, the larger issue is that if you cannot be honest with the president or in this case also the vice president of the United States and you did not properly uh, inform him of your conversations and then the vice president of the United States goes on television and reiterates a narrative which you told him, which is factually inaccurate, uh, look, I think it's very difficult to serve in any capacity in the administration. You have an obligation to make sure that you're honest and trustworthy with the president and the vice president because the way I understand it, those are the only two people in the government who are guaranteed a job for the next four years. Then why did it take so long to get rid of him after they knew that he they, – after they were told the president, uh, Steve Bannon, uh, Reince Priebus and the council, White House counsel, why did it take so long to tell uh, the vice president what had transpired? Yeah, I don't know the inner workings of how the conversation took place, but from what I understand and what's been publicly reported, Sally Yates from the Department of Justice notified the White House counsel 
who, <coughs> um, who turned around and notified a number of other people within the building who then had some type of, uh, I, I suppose, conversation with the president to notify him of uh, what the Department of Justice has indicated. I don't know when the vice president was brought into the loop. I don't know if he was brought into the loop. I, that, those are internal discussions I'm not privy to. But what I do think is uh, what we saw when the Washington Post reported it was as soon as the vice president was made aware of it, if that's how he was made aware of it, he acted very swiftly and uh, was steadfast in his resolve that he no longer had confidence in the national security advisor and I think you know, was um, probably a person who helped encourage uh, Mike Flynn. What to if the resign. Post hadn't reported it? Again, look, I think it's part of uh, the open question of who knew when, and, and you know, that's, a, that's a very real question. And do you, did the Department of Justice say that Mike Flynn was open to blackmail based on these conversations? I don't know. I'm not privy to the classified information. That seems to be what is being reported. I just don't know the answer. Let me uh, finish up uh, because uh, I and a lot of other people who uh, purport to be knowledgeable in politics missed a lot in 2016. Right now, it feels like the president's gotten off to a pretty rocky start. You don't want headlines about turmoil, chaos, le- internal leaking, and so on. Um, but how do you judge the way he's started, and what does he need to do now to change the narrative? I think the president, in the first 20 days, has begun to fulfill the campaign promises, which he outlined. We saw that through a series of executive orders. Uh, I do think, and I agree with Governor Christie on this, Uh, The staff has probably not prepared him as well as they could have or should have as it related to some of those executive orders and the implementation and what that would mean, uh, particularly as it related to um, immigration issues. I think uh, you have a president who wants to move very quickly, who has a grand vision of what he wants to accomplish and and is leaving the details to the staff to implement, and I have to hope that the staff understands what that means. It was I, as I look at the totality of the senior staff, and if that's Kellyanne Conway, Steve Bannon, Reince Priebus, Jared Kushner, uh, you know, the senior staff inside the building, none of them have ever worked inside the government. And I think it's both a plus and a minus. You, know, you don't know what you don't know, but what I think you see is people like General Mattis and General Kelly who understand the government uh, coming in and taking a larger role now understanding how to get things done and making sure they're rolled out properly. And what I think you'll see moving forward, hopefully, is a measured approach, not to, not to scale back on fulfilling the promises of the campaign, but making sure that you have vetted it properly with not only the right legal entities, but also giving the heads up to those people in Congress so that you don't have backlash from your own party, that they were unaware of issues that are coming forward because you want to build consensus to move your agenda forward. Yeah, you're a... Um you obviously you've been in, in this work for a long time. If you're doing things that appeal to your base, then you want those to be the center, the focus of the story. It seems like a lot of these controversies have diverted attention from the story that uh, the president wants to tell. He has to tell the story of he's going to provide middle class tax cuts. It's something that he's campaigned on. He has to tell the story that we're going to put America first. He has to tell the story that we're going to control our borders and that we're going to have fair trade deals. Um, that's the story that he has to tell, and everything else is a diversion. You know, he has to tell the story that he has campaigned on repealing Obamacare. Now you have to find a way to get those things done. You know, as you know, the hard part's actually governing. They, they always say the campaign's the tough part. The campaign's the easy part. Now you have to go and implement, and you've got a massive bureaucracy staffed with career bureaucrats who have a very different agenda, and they uh, – you know, they stick around from administration to one administration. Of the, one of the issues is that he himself has been slow in filling some of these positions. Why? why? I, I think some of it is the concern that the U.S. Senate hasn't moved fast enough. And I think if you look at the Jeff Sessions nomination, you know, Jeff Sessions' first hearing for attorney general was on January 4th, even before the president was sworn in. He didn't get sworn in and voted on by the full Senate until last week. You know, seven weeks. But, Corey, you know, Mattis has been there from the beginning. Um, Kelly has been there from almost the beginning. They still don't have uh, deputies. There are thousands of positions, literally, that need to be uh, filled. Was it a deficiency of the transition? Or I, I did, think— Do you think that— Do you think there was a sense— Were they surprised? Were, were people surprised when he won? Did, it, did that put them back? I think what happened was, you know, the the president appoints approximately 4,152 appointments. Of those, not all of them require Senate confirmation. Some are Schedule C's, et cetera. Um, 
But looking at the government in the totality, uh, there were so few people on the campaign that they didn't have enough people to fill all of these roles is what it came down to. So now you have to go out and look outside the box of the people that you knew internally. And a number of those people, candidly, were not supportive of the the Trump presidency. And we saw that recently where someone wanted a position and the president was made aware of some comments. Deputy Secretary of State. That's exactly right. Elliot Abram. And and he said, uh, well, you know, I didn't say anything that nobody else didn't say. Well, the difference is, you know, if you're so fundamentally opposed to the president's agenda, why would you want to join the administration? And part of the reason is, and this is not directed at any one person, is people get used to the power. They want to. They want to get back into the Tillerson government. Tillerson wanted the guy, though. No, I understand, but look, it's very difficult, Dave. If you have a person who has said some really tough things about you and written some really nasty letters about you, to then come and say, "Hey, guess what? Oh, I'll, I'll serve if you want me to." Well, you, you didn't have to. You didn't have to publicly disagree with me all the way through the campaign to only now take a job because it's good for your professional career. If maybe uh, they would have been more helpful, maybe that was the case. This is the problem. There were so few people on the campaign that needed jobs because there was only a couple hundred people when the whole campaign was done. It wasn't like the Clinton apparatus that had 30 years of building mm-hmm. around them to, to go and fill these positions. And I think what they're trying to do right now is to make sure that they're getting good qualified candidates that are going to go through the Senate confirmation process. We'll see how it goes. Corey Lewandowski, thanks for being here and uh, looking forward to uh, your appearance at the Institute of Politics. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.